Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. Shalom, my friend. How are you? Shalom, Pastor. Thank God we're doing okay over here. Wonderful. We have a lot to talk about on this edition of the podcast. We will get into the Torah portion in a few moments, but there is big news to discuss in the U.S. and in Israel. The United States President Donald Trump just a few days ago announced that the United States would be leaving or withdrawing from what's called the JCPOA, and that's better known as the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama signed. President Trump decided that the deal was not a good one. It did not have the power to keep Iran from developing nuclear weapons and based a lot on the presentation by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from a week earlier that said that Iran had been cheating on the deal and continuing to advance their nuclear capabilities and their weapons system development. The Americans announced we will be withdrawing from the deal and also reimposing economic sanctions on Iran and countries and businesses who do commerce with Iran. And that turned into some military consequences, which we'll discuss next. But first, Rabbi, your Israeli perspective on the Americans leaving the Iran nuclear deal. So I think it's important for uh, Americans to know this because I've gotten the question in almost every group that I've spoken to and uh, many people who have misinformation about this. Uh, Israel is almost completely unified in its support for President Trump's decision. Israel was against the Iran deal, the nuclear deal, when it was happening. And I'm talking about from right wing to left wing. Maybe you'll have a little bit in the extreme, extreme left who don't have this opinion, but the consensus was against it. We knew that it was going to pave the way for Iran to have the, a nuclear bomb after the deal was over, even if they complied to it. But even worse, uh, the, the huge amounts of money which came to them, which they are using specifically to develop weaponry, missiles, and uh, using their, uh, their, their, their uh, friends in other countries uh, sort of as their uh, extensions, uh, both in uh, Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon and in other places, Yemen, where they're trying to take hold of land and use it as a platform to destroy Israel. And yes, uh, sadly to say, also to fire at the United States when the time would come. So we were against the deal. We applaud the president for following through on something which he had promised during the campaign. And there's even, I would say, even though we knew that some of the consequences could be some military altercations with Iran. There's a huge sigh of relief that this United States is out of this deal, that there'll be financial repercussions, economic repercussions for Iran. And hopefully there's some kind of sensibility going on here where maybe other countries will follow and recognize we cannot allow Iran to arm itself and we cannot allow Iran to pave its way towards a nuclear weapon and try to convince ourselves 
along the way that somehow we've stopped it or delayed it because of some uh, piece of paper. So uh, everyone in America who supports Israel can know that Israel is thankful, extremely thankful. Uh, to the president and to the United States for taking this action. And I think it further demonstrates the strength uh, of our alliance and the values uh, which lie behind uh, that alliance. And I'd like to get your reaction to the presentation that Prime Minister Netanyahu made, showing all of the documents and the CDs and the computer files and everything that the Israeli intelligence service smuggled, stole, gathered, whatever the right verb is, taken out of Tehran in Iran and demonstrated to the world what Iran was working on for its nuclear capability. What were your thoughts, both as an Israeli citizen but also as a politician, on the revelation given by the prime minister? So the truth is I, I don't feel that I have enough information to weigh in on whether the presentation was right or wrong. I keep hearing voices in different places, some in the intelligence community who felt it was a mistake to go so public with it, others who said it was fine. I don't have enough of a basis to give an answer to that, but I will tell you what I was thinking while I was watching the Prime Minister speak. I was thinking to myself, God is great. (laughs) To see a nation that somehow through our intelligence services got into the vaults of the Iranian nuclear archives and somehow emerged with 100,000 documents? How can that possibly happen within the regular rules of nature? I know the Mossad is wonderful. I know we have some very brilliant and sneaky people. There's no way that doesn't happen without the help of God. There's a divine power behind the things that Israel does, and that's what I was thinking the entire time. We're, We're so thankful to these dedicated people in these services for Israel and people who obviously, certainly in this case, risk their lives uh, to get this information. Uh, I think it's helpful, certainly for Israel and the United States, to know that Iran was lying all along, even though we certainly believed that, but now you know it uh, for a fact. Uh, Just the incredible divine providence and blessing that we have to be able to uh, retrieve this kind of information. Was that in any way part of the conversation uh, in the churches or, or in the states uh, during this time? Was it right for the prime minister to release it, meaning should he have explained it so openly that this was an intelligence operation and a smuggling operation, or should they have been more covert or more secret in their announcement? And, of course, one way to look at that is this is showing Iran and the rest of Israel's enemies, this is what we can do. Don't think we are limited in our capability. So one reason you go so public is to basically brag or show off or demonstrate your capabilities. The reason you wouldn't be so open about it is the opposite. We don't want you to know what we can do so that we can do it again if we need to. So that was a, a right. an interesting debate back and forth. And there's one of these reactions is, So, Iran's cheating on their deal. What news is that? Everyone believed that. No one who was watching the agreement go into effect when President Obama and Secretary of State John Kerry were pushing this believed Iran would comply with the deal in the first place. Yet this is just confirmation that what we thought would happen, that they would cheat, actually happened. And also what we thought would happen, that this deal didn't have any teeth, would happen. And that's what we saw here in the States. The question is, Israel is celebrating this. Most Americans are celebrating this. But Europe is not. 
and the rest of the world is not. And for one reason, they look like fools for going into a deal with Iran, knowing ahead of time that Iran would cheat. But also, a lot of European governments and European companies have taken advantage of the reduction in sanctions against Iran to go and do business with Iran. And they're not going to make money off of Iran, especially Iranian oil. So not everybody's happy about this. And that's true. And uh, one of the things that Israel has certainly learned over time, and we're happy to see the United States uh, doing the same, is that we can't always make everybody happy. And we're sorry about that. But we have to do uh, what we need to do to protect ourselves. Uh, People weren't happy when Israel uh, took out Iraq's nuclear reactor, including the leadership of the United States. I think when the Iraq war came along, they were happy that we did that. Uh, People weren't happy that we took out the Syrian uh, nuclear reactor, even though that was a little bit more private. And I think that now, when they see what's happening in Syria, they're quite happy with it. People weren't happy with Israel's action during the Six-Day War, where we went out and we, where we went out and we, uh, in, a, in an act of self-defense, we attacked uh, our enemies who were you know, ganging up on our borders uh, to attack us. And Israel is always going to do what Israel needs to do. And we're happy to see the United States taking that action as well. And even if it means that there's a gap between Europe and Israel and the United States, that's a price that we're willing to pay. Our hope is certainly to convince Europe to join us in these efforts. And we certainly hope that, you know, through diplomacy, we can explain to them why this is worthwhile. But that's the way it goes sometimes. We need to do what's best. And I'm happy to see the United States doing what's best, both for the United States and also for Israel. One of the results of the decision by President Trump to remove the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal was Iran taking on military action, most specifically from their bases in Syria and sending rockets or missiles toward Israel in the northern part of Israel called the Golan Heights, and then the expected and immediate retaliation by the Israeli military against Iranian bases and personnel in Syria. So talk about, first of all, what you know from the news, what was the start of this, and then talk about the Israeli reaction to it. Well, the Iranian brigade shot missiles towards the Golan Heights. Um, Thank God there were some that were shot down by Iron Dome, others that landed in uninhabited areas. And Israel immediately responded by hitting back at the sources of that missile fire, as we always do. Uh, We don't go and try to just get revenge. There's a specific goal in the response. And Israel will continue to do so. Uh, there are many who are saying that Iran doesn't exactly know what to do here because they know that they're in trouble if they start up uh, with Israel in this manner. And they, Israel has proven that it will do whatever it has to do to defend itself. I, I will tell you, because I'm wondering, I, I'm getting some messages from people in America of, of concern and worry. There is no fear uh, in the streets of Israel today. Yeah, there have been some reservists that have been called up just in case. Uh, but there's a feeling of pride a feeling of strength, a feeling of God's protection. And we go on with our regular lives uh, while this is going on. But of course, we have to take all precautions necessary, both in the northern part of Israel and throughout Israel, as we see how this develops. It could spiral uh, into something more, and that's obviously of concern. But no one is doubting 
uh, either the pulling out of the Iran deal or firing back at Iran uh, after they shoot on Israel. But there's no doubt that there's a new development here. And Pastor, we'd ask everyone for their prayers, uh, prayers for the people living in Israel, in the areas where the missiles could land, uh, for the armed forces, uh, both for their well-being and for their success. And that's part of the partnership that we have, that we look out for each other and that we pray for each other. And what has been the damage, if any, done in Israeli territory? Have there been any casualties? And what is the, the directions given to the folks living there in the Golan? So there's no doubt that, first and foremost, the people there are well-drilled in how to deal with uh, these issues in Israel, uh, sadly, but uh, the reality of, of um, going into safe rooms and bunkers is not something which is new, and people are acclimated to it. It doesn't bring shock, and that's what people uh, will, uh, will do. Thanks to God's goodness, and we've seen this over and over again, we don't have uh, casualties uh, on our side and, and no significant damage that I'm aware of. But then we fire back and uh, we kill you know, people from the regime, uh, both uh, Iran and, uh, and, and Syria and military targets, and we'll continue to do so. Uh, that, that's just what we're going to do. Um, of course, Iran comes out at a certain point and denies that they fired the rockets at Israel. That's not a surprise, especially if they weren't successful. Uh, but we view it as, as God's grace uh, that you know, 20 rockets are fired at Israel, and not only is there no casualties, but also the Iron Dome actually intercepts some. And again, the intercept some is the Iron Dome is the United States to thank for in that project as well. And just to conclude this military part of the conversation, it appears that Iran has tens of thousands of Iranian soldiers in Syria, and then Iran is making these kinds of threats like all of Israel is within range of our weapons, Tel Aviv will be razed to the ground, Iran has the ability to obliterate Israel, it will turn Tel Aviv and Haifa into dust, all of these threats. So... Are you expecting an escalation of military activity between Iran in Syria and Israel? We've heard those threats before. They're, they're actually said on a weekly basis. Like I said before, both against what they call the little state in Israel and the big state in America. We've heard it so many times. I was blessed to be in Israel during the Gulf War, and Saddam Hussein was saying the same statements, and he fired 39 Scud missiles into Israel. Uh, and the damage was was damage actually to physical property was high, but not to actual casualties on the ground. Uh, God's grace again, sort of deflecting those missiles uh, away. I don't know if it's going to escalate though, because <laughs> I think Iran is learning very quickly that it's not so simple how to get away with that with Israel, and that's why I mean, why are they out there denying it? They should be pumping their chests and saying, "Look at us, we attacked Israel," because when it's a colossal failure. Uh, they want to step away from it. So will they try some new way? Uh, will they back down a little bit? I don't know. Um, I don't have a way of getting into their heads uh, on this. Um, but the one thing I can say, and this is so important for everyone to hear, is that in Israel we are not afraid. Uh, with God's help, we'll deal with whatever comes our way on the security front. We have a military that's prepared to do whatever it has to do. And there is a sense of pride, a sense of confidence, and a, certainly our prayers continue strong for our armed forces and for the people living in the north. And we will continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem 
and all the people in Israel, Psalm 122, verse 6. And that leads us into this week's Torah portion, the weekly parasha that the rabbi and I get to discuss. And this week in the Torah portion, we conclude the book of Leviticus. We will be talking about chapters 25, 26, and 27. This is another double reading. Remember the calendar, because the Torah portions sometimes get interrupted by holiday readings. You have a double reading so you can catch back up to the one reading per week. And the two names of this reading are Bahar and Behukotai, and it comes again from Leviticus 25, 26, and 27. And Rabbi, one of the things that you mentioned is we've been talking so far in Leviticus about individual responsibilities. As individual children of God, our responsibilities to obey the Lord and be faithful to Him and live a righteous life. But now in the last part of Leviticus, the focus seems to be moving toward a national or a corporate responsibility all the people of God called to live righteously. Talk about this transition from individual to corporate. So it's so critical because every single one of us functions on two different planes. One is the individual, but we're also part of a nation. And the judgments that we experience happen on both of those planes. The, the portion that we have uh, today opens up with this discussion about sabbatical year, the sabbatical year is a national movement of belief and trust and faith in God, where we as a nation stop working the land. Uh, it's a year where people are supposed to focus on the spiritual and not all the agriculture and show that we have full faith in God uh, that all will be okay, even if we stop working the land uh, for that year. There are actually commentaries that talk about it in the context of agricultural rules, that actually working the land for six years is overworking the land, because usually people would pause after two years and let it rest a little bit. Here we work for six years, as the Bible commands, and then we rest, and everything's going to be uh, okay. But it's a national movement. It's a national uh, uh, religious practice, and the ramifications are also national. The rewards that we receive for doing so and the punishments that we receive for not doing so are also in the national. I think it's a very important lesson, first and foremost, about faith and trust, but also to recognize that it's not just about my story, but it's all of us as a nation, and we're all responsible for one another. As we look at the beginning of this reading, Leviticus 25 the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, that's verse 1, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. So the idea is, just like in the weekly schedule or calendar, you work for six days and then you give a day to the Lord called the Sabbath day. Here is, you work for six years on your crops, on your land, and then you have a seventh year where you don't produce crops. Now, Rabbi, that leads to a number of questions. One requires you, doesn't it, to trust the Lord that he's going to provide not only food to eat, but money. That's one question. And then another question is, you're not a farmer. Most of the Israelis are not farmers. The Jews who live in the land work in high tech or banking or 
or the travel industry or police officers or army officers or whatever. They're not farmers. So the first question is, how do you trust God to provide in the seventh year? And the next question is, how does this apply to folks who are not farmers? So the first element of the faith uh, and that God will provide, that's the real crux of the issue here. And it took a major step of faith for the people to do so. And we do have stories in our tradition of the people of Israel keeping to this and them having double crops to make sure that they will be able to uh, survive during this sabbatical cycle and the sabbatical years. Uh, but it's really all about the faith in God and recognizing that when it's all said and done, He provides. And that's what we're trying to entrench inside ourselves and our families with the year. Now, the question you asked about the reality of Israel today, where maybe in the past, in a few thousand years ago, it was an agricultural society, and therefore would impact pretty much everyone. Today, that's not the case. Still, it has an impact on Israel, because the question is, but where do I get my tomatoes from? And where do I get my lettuce from? And where do I get my fruits from? And if I'm getting it from... Jews who are violating the sabbatical year, from Jewish farmers who are violating the sabbatical year, that's a problem. And if I do find a way to get it in a, in a way that coincides with religious law, there's also holiness contained in those products and in those crops. And there's a way that we have to uh, get rid of those uh, crops if we want to throw food out, uh, all kinds of rules about how to deal with the holiness. So it actually does impact day-to-day life when we have a sabbatical year in Israel every seven years, not with the intensity, of course, of someone who is a farmer, uh, but we still remember these lessons because we have to be cautious about where we're buying our food, where it's coming from, what we do with it, and it is a year which is very different uh, than others, and also the beginning of the following year because we're still talking about the crops from the seventh year. Obviously, I'm not the first person to ask such a question because in Leviticus 25, verse 20, The Lord says, if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year? If we do not sow or gather in our crops, then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. Meaning in the sixth year, you're going to have crops grow that you can eat in the sixth year. Then you're going to have it in the seventh year when you're not planting and reaping. And then you're going to have it in the eighth year because you're going to go ahead and plant at the beginning of the eighth year, but it won't be time to harvest it until the end of the eighth year. So God here makes the promise, I will provide if you will trust me. And that's that's an incredible back and forth where the people, and the Bible lays it right out there. They ask the question uh, straight out. God provides them the answer. And now it's for the people uh, to trust that. And that's really why this is viewed as the primary commandment Uh, of trust and of faith, where it really makes it clear uh, that we are people of faith. And every seven years, the people, just like as you pointed out, the Sabbath is every seven days, and every seven days we also focus on God and focus on faith. Here it's a real act of faith, uh, where people have to completely rely on God uh, for their food, and uh, we need those remind- reminders. We, you know, it's easy to lapse into life without having that reminder, and somehow things get put to the back of our minds. And that's the idea here. The idea here is, and that's why I would say to you, even those who don't live in Israel and aren't experiencing the sabbatical year, the lesson is that they must somehow instill as part of their lives something 
which inspires them and reminds them about this incredibly important dimension of faith and trust. We continue our discussion of the Torah portion in the book of Leviticus, and Rabbi, we transition every seven groups of seven years from the sabbatical year to the year of Jubilee. So talk about the calendar. Is this the 49th year or the 50th year, and and what is the difference or the significance in moving from sabbatical year to year of Jubilee? So the Jubilee year is a is a, a concept which for, I think, our uh, capitalistic Western uh, culture is very difficult to imagine. This, uh, the, the Jubilee year is not just a continuation of the sabbatical in terms of holding back from working in the land, but it's much more than that. There's a holiness of the year where there's a liberty described in all the land. All indentured servants go free. Any sales that were made of land goes back to the original owner. Uh, a concept which is completely foreign to us. Everything is temporary. Everything goes back to its original person. It's a year where uh, it's, the Bible, over and over again, you'll see the terminology of holy. There's a holiness. And the ultimate message is nothing is yours. Everything is God's. And things go back and forth to other people. And everything is ultimately in God's possession. And therefore, when he commands you in the 50th year to release the servant, you release the servant. When he tells you the sales go back, the sales go back. And uh, that's an every 50 year uh, reminder that we have of that concept. And like I said before, so foreign to our minds, because we live in a world where we have control. We have control over everything. We own our property. We own our homes. We own our businesses. And the statement here is, that's not the way it works. Uh, by the way, uh, I should go back for a moment. Even the sabbatical year, there's another concept of loans uh, being uh, forgiven. Uh, things are just topsy-turvy and not the way we think that we have control over everything as human beings. And that is a big message of, of the Jubilee year as well. Leviticus 25, verse 11, You shall have the 50th year as a Jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. And verse 13 says, On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. So again, Rabbi, now the modern question. Does your mortgage on your house get forgiven? How does this happen in the real world? The modern world, so I should asking, say. You're, correct. You're asking a wonderful question, and, and here. This is fascinating, because especially uh, your Israel-loving audience will, will appreciate this. There are different standards in terms of what laws apply when, meaning are we bound by the sabbatical rules when we don't have a temple? Are we bound by the jubilee rules when we don't have a temple? And there's different criteria, differences of opinion, but one thing seems to be sure, that the, require, the jubilee does kick in if a majority of Jews live in Israel. If a majority of the Jewish people and live in the land of Israel, then there are clear opinions that we are required, and we're going to have a whole new set of rules regarding all of this. And we're pretty close to that happening. And therefore, there are certainly rabbis working on this issue, and we're going to all have to learn uh, how does it all work. So we've got to stay tuned uh, until the uh, Jubilee year uh, comes and see at that point where we are uh, in terms of the population, I'll tell you, we are very, very close, uh, very close to that time when we can say with, with definity 
that, that you know that we can say for sure that uh, we have a majority of Jews in Israel, and then all of these questions are going to uh, come into effect. As we go to Leviticus chapter twenty-six, it begins in verse one: "You shall not make for yourselves idols." Nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. So there is the idea of blessing for obedience. The Lord says, if you will obey my commandments, there will be blessing for you. But there's also the opposite. If you go down to Leviticus 26, verse 21, if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And I will let loose among you beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie desolate. So, Rabbi, we all like to hear the story of blessing and the promise of, of abundance. We don't like the tough lessons or the corrective lessons where we're told by the Lord that disobedience brings judgment or consequences. But the Lord is very clear about both sides of that story. And this is viewed by us. This is a section that's called the blessings and the curses. Uh, the Bible does not describe everything as rosy. You read verses, and there are many more that just go on and on of graphic description of what will happen. And, Pastor, to be honest with you, it has happened. Uh, the Jewish people have experienced uh, these curses throughout the, the long and very difficult exile. But the idea behind it is national reward and national punishment. This is not individuals, but it's a nation. We are responsible for one another. It's sad to see that we've experienced the curses. Now we're certainly hoping that we're moving into a time where we're seeing, we have seen, a tremendous blessing. But the message in this case is focusing on national responsibility. I'm responsible for my brothers and sisters. They're responsible for me. We have to help each other. We have to inspire one another. Uh, and that's a critical message as well, uh, because so much of religious observance um, one could view in the context of the individual. And now all of a sudden we're talking about national uh, responsibility. I'm not familiar if Christianity has a similar tenet in terms of any kind of national uh, or faith-based uh, uh, general consequences for actions. Well, we have the concept that we call the body of Christ, that everyone who is a follower of Jesus, old or young, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile for that matter, everyone who is a follower of Jesus, we feel comprises what the New Testament calls the body of Christ and sometimes called the church with a capital C, the church overall. And so while it's not a national concept, it is a spiritual family concept, and a lot of the same ideas apply that I am to obey the Lord as an individual, but I'm also to encourage my brother or sister in the Lord to walk by faith and to live a life of righteousness. And my sin can have an effect on me, but it can also have an effect on the people around me. So the blessing follows obedience, cursing follows disobedience. That applies in Jewish thought and in Christian thought. It's all throughout the Bible. 
that we are supposed to be living amongst our neighbors, amongst our family members, and all of us, when we seek the Lord, God's blessing rains down on us collectively. But every national sin or every national disobedience is a result of a combination of individual disobediences. And that's true in the church. It's true in the land of Israel. So that's back to the idea of the family of God or what we would call the body of Christ. So the, you know, the idea of we're responsible for one another and inspire one another, uh, that's something which is so important. Um, you know, when God created the world, he, didn't, uh, he created a world. He created many people. And uh, we actually view it as if we're you know, all parts of one body. That's sort of a, a way that we look at it. And um, we take that very seriously. Uh, certainly Israel has afforded us the opportunity to really live together geographically and have more influence. Uh, one on the other. By the way, when we read the section of the curses in synagogue, in many synagogues, the person who's doing the reading of the Torah actually lowers his voice and reads it a little bit more quickly than the rest of the portion, as if to say, we don't want to really focus on the curses. We get it. We understand that it can happen. We want to focus more on the, on the, on the blessings. Uh, but for us, in our time, to look backwards and say, yes, historically, these curses did happen, and that's very painful, but God does not leave it with curses. God finishes the chapters of the curses very, very clearly. I'm just looking for a moment at uh, chapter 26, verse 45, where he says, I'll remember the covenant uh, when I took you out of Egypt, and I'll be your God, and I end with the positive. And here we are today seeing uh, the beginning of the end of the story with our return to Israel and with our coming back, uh, it's unbelievable to see how all of that has played out so clearly. So let's finish the last chapter of the book of Leviticus and in the last chapter of this week's Torah portion, Leviticus chapter 27. And it seems a little bit like we changed subjects here. One of the headings for this chapter is laws concerning vows, that if we make a vow to the Lord, we should keep it. But also there's the vows between people and vows amongst people with their animals. It's very interesting and and seems to be a different subject matter. So give us a a summary teaching of chapter 27. So first of all, I mean, just just that idea that we shift gears so suddenly, like you said, Pastor, we shift gears from this national description of blessings and curses and, 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 and very grandiose uh, in nature. But to end the portion and to end the book of Leviticus, we shift back to some of the more detailed laws. That in and of itself, I believe, is, a, is an important lesson that we don't want to lose sight of the uh, specifics. Uh, and, and we're sort of brought back or jolted back to that, that reality. That's just one thing which I certainly uh, take from uh, the concept. The, the chapter deals, first of all, with uh, contributions that were made to the temple, which were not mentioned uh, at all uh, earlier, um, but the, it seems to be highlighting uh, the idea of voluntary gifts and we have to understand what are the values of different things that people dedicate, whether it's money, whether it's physical things that they're sanctifying, giving to the, to the temple. Um, but it, it seems to be saying that this is uh, important, but it's not part of the actual body of laws that we had before, meaning focus on what one must do. 
I want must do and not on the voluntary elements. And that's why some people say that's why it's all the way at the end of the book. The book really concluded with the curses and the blessings. And then we mentioned, by the way, you have the right to do voluntary things as well. And it actually gives you some of the details of how to go about doing that. But that's why it's at the end of the book and not somehow in the middle when we were dealing with all of those detailed laws. So as we come to our end of our discussion with the Torah reading for the week, what do you say is the main lesson that we should go home with this week? I think it's twofold. It's the faith and trust from the sabbatical. Uh, what, a, what a powerful, powerful message that we need to have those regular reminders, both as individuals and as a nation. So we living here in Israel do have that through the sabbatical. Everyone else should find other ways to do so. The idea of the sabbatical in general, of taking a pause and focusing on spirituality and removing ourselves somewhat from the physical. And that's part one. And then part two, to really focus on this national responsibility towards one another, national consequences, national blessings. And the last part that I would say again is to just harp on that point, to realize that we've, we have experienced these curses. This, uh, these are prophecies that came true. These are not some outlandish prophecies, which can anybody ever imagine this happening? As you read these chapters and you read all of its graphic description, it happened. We've experienced it. We sinned. We were punished. We were exiled but also the end of it as well, which is the blessings that come and the return to Israel. So it almost, to me, shows me that these curses and blessings reinforce that idea of faith and trust and belief, which we're working on in the beginning of uh, the portion. So it really all comes together, and that's something which is a beautiful way to end the book of Leviticus and to prepare ourselves for the continuation of the narrative, which will happen in the book of Numbers. So I will leave us with the two verses you mentioned one of them Leviticus 26 44 and then 45 44 says in spite of this the Lord speaking when they are in the land of their enemies I will not reject them nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them breaking my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God Now 45, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And the lesson here is cursings or judgments do follow disobedience. But as much as they might break our hearts, I believe they break the heart of the Heavenly Father even more so because he doesn't want to judge or punish He wants to bless and restore, and so it is not a punishment for the sake of injury. It is a punishment for the sake of calling us to repentance so that we might return to him. Beautiful, and that that is certainly the the, the point that we have to focus on, that uh, when God does talk about consequences, uh, it's not punitive in nature, uh, but it's to help inspire and bring us back to the right path. Always enjoy studying the Word of God with you, my friend. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. Shabbat shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.